The second wave of COVID-19 is upon us and hard lessons learned over the spring aren't necessarily being applied today. So how do we flatten the curve going into the holidays? The Institute's Rosalie Wunsch joined Professor Colleen Flood, University of Ottawa Research Chair in Health Law and Policy, and a member of the Crisis Working Group on Public Health and Emergency Measures, alongside former Senior Deputy Governor of the Bank of Canada, Paul Jenkins. Paul started us off by explaining that this isn't a conversation about health versus the economy, that's a false dichotomy. The conversation is not about trading off lives for, for the economy. I think uh, uh, everyone uh, recognizes that. And uh, indeed, in the work that uh, I've done with Jeremy Cronick, uh, our, our work shows that you can achieve uh, the same health outcomes, but at a lower economic cost. And you can do that through strategic use of of tools and leveraging the data that we've uh, accumulated over the last uh, six to, to nine months. So, so we're not talking about a trade-off in any way. We're talking about achieving the same health outcomes, but at a lower economic cost. You know, I agree that there, sh- there shouldn't be a um, dichotomy that good controlling the pandemic uh, is um, critical to getting the economy and business back on track. Uh, so those two things go together. However, that being said, I don't think that we're seeing uh, necessarily all Canadian governments doing what Paul has just said. Uh, and in fact, what you hear them saying, and in fact, uh, you hear other pundits saying, is that there has to be a balance. So this balance you know, implies that by necessity that the balance is how many infections and death uh, deaths will we permit because we want to keep business and other things open. So I think we might like to say that there's no trade-off here, but I think that trade-off has been made in a problematic way in my view right now. Colleen, you, tell us a bit about your background as a health policy scholar and how it's informing your views on how we're handling this crisis on the whole, because you've commented that we've never had true lockdowns. Is the voluntary honor system approach the right approach? We talk about lockdowns here, but they are not true lockdowns in the sense that a lot of this is is voluntary. Lockdowns that have happened in my my country of birth, New Zealand and other countries, Australia, et cetera, um, Asia Pacific countries were not voluntary. You had to stay in your house. Business was shut down, but so were people. So we're gatherings, um, you know, you're only allowed to move around for essential work or essential purposes. And, um, you know, that may seem draconian from a Canadian perspective, but um, that, that policy in combination with other policies has certainly worked to um, quell the pandemic in those jurisdictions. So so I think we have to think about that, you know, voluntary measures, uh, cajoling, trying to persuade Canadians to do the right thing will only go so far. And I think now as uh, time has gone on, you know, this has gone from a marathon to an ultra marathon or a Iron Man thing I heard someone saying today, people are exhausted and tired and kind of over it. Uh, and so I think that can only take us so far. So I think we have to have a really hard look at what we're doing. 
and whether we're doing enough. Is there a clear demarcation line, though, between voluntary and mandatory orders? And if so, what is it? Well, a mandatory order is, you know, will have um, consequences if you don't, legal consequences if you don't comply with it. Uh, so a fine or some other measure, you know, we what what you want is um, when you have a, a mandate, a mandatory order, you need the police to be skilled in enforcement so they're not ticketing people who are breaking the law requirements because they really have no other option. So, for example, the homeless or and so on. Uh, so it requires some nuancing in enforcement for sure. But voluntary is where, you know, it's really just... Um, please, um, you know, please stay home, please do the right thing, and please help us trying to stop the spread of the infection. And, you know, a number of people will, for a variety of reasons, think that this doesn't really apply to them, that they're not at risk, or somehow that what they do won't have an impact on others, or if it does, they're not that worried about it. I think uh, another way of, of looking at, at this uh demarcation line is, is speaking as an economist uh, in terms of cost benefit. And what I mean by that is, uh, is mask wearing has been shown to be a very effective in containing the spread. And uh, uh, this, this, in my mind, begins to get into the, the issue of prevention versus waiting too long. You might call it risk management, if you like, but uh, uh, it's the forward-looking aspect of it, if, if you like, uh, uh, that that I think uh, is is important here as well. There doesn't necessarily have to be a hard line between a voluntary or a mandatory style. One other side that we haven't really thought of is, you know, Colleen mentioned that there would be enforcement as in a punishment if you don't follow the rules. The other side, uh, and an example we've seen in South Korea, is if you, you know, do identify and you have COVID and you have to stay in your house for two weeks, then the government sends you supplies for that. And so it gives, you know, some of these people that are making these choices, it might not actually be as voluntary um, to quarantine or not, as we might think. So, you know, just thinking about people who may not have access to benefits, maybe worried about uh, sick pay or sick days, or feel like their job is precarious. Simply, they need money because they've got to keep a roof over their head and they live close, they live close to that line. Yeah. If you get sick, then it becomes a choice of, you know, possibly doing the right thing from a societal perspective, but at a great personal cost. And so I think we need to address that there are some people that really a voluntary choice isn't, it, it comes at a cost. So it's not that they're, they don't want to quarantine or they wouldn't want to do the right thing. We also need to enable people to be able to do the right thing. And so I think that that's really where uh, Canada could possibly improve is, as Colleen said, it, it might, we might not be as uh, open to the sort of mandatory enforcement measures, but I think we could do something to at least make complying with the voluntary orders uh, more palatable or easier for people. Rosalie, can I just jump in though and say, um, I agree with you that we need to have compensation and supports for people who find, um, you know, the the effects of dealing with precautionary measures uh, difficult from a socioeconomic or any other kind of perspective. So, for example, if we have 
a mandate for mandatory masking on um, public transit, you know, I think it, we have to make sure that we provide masks for people who otherwise don't have them or um, don't, you know, can't afford them or whatever. But not to require the masking because of that. This is what we're seeing in Canada. You know, not to do certain things, not to have mandates because of some argument about uh, impact on the vulnerable, I think is so perverse because it's precisely those people, the vulnerable, who will suffer and die from, from COVID. My view is, uh, even although I said that this is a, di a difficult conversation, Rosalie, and in Canada, I am now much more of the view, given what is happening with the second wave, that we have to have a mandate. Well then, Paul, let's talk about that, because you created an epidemiological economic model to analyze how to turn the tide, and you concluded there is a need for targeted interventions. What do those targeted interventions look like? And if we ratchet it up, as Colleen suggests, uh, some of the enforcement component to it, that would possibly help flatten the curve. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, in our in our research, uh, there are two aspects to to the intervention uh, that we try to model. The first is um, targeted lockdowns uh, focused on uh, on high risk areas, and and in our first stage of our research, uh, uh, the high risk area were were the elderly, and in the second uh, stage of our research, it was. Uh, High contact industries. So these res results don't don't preclude uh, the need for a widespread lockdown if the situation looks uh, uh, to be out of out of control. Uh, the notion of a, of a circuit breaker, for for example. But the the key result here is uh, over the course of uh, a one year time horizon, which is what we use as our scenario. One must always look at at where the highest risk. Um, uh, risks are and and to determine where and how to act in in terms of lockdown so so that that's kind of one aspect of it the other aspect of it is is uh, what we call non-economic uh, interventions where we show the use of masks social distancing etc does help significantly uh, uh, to minimize the uh, the economic costs uh, but but Critical to to all of this is certainly the need to leverage the data and the experiences that we've we've, we've gathered uh, over over the period since since March, uh, and I think especially um, in in terms of testing and tracing, uh, that is a, a critical aspect of identifying uh, the high high cost areas. But I'd like to just add a, another another point here, um, and I, I think it dovetails with. Uh, with Colleen's point, and, and it really is the 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 importance of communications and and the need for clear, consistent, transparent uh, transparent messaging, uh, which I think people can respond to uh, and will respond to if if you have a plan that's laid out in front of you. Uh, uh, you know, not just what and how we we will act, but uh, why we're doing it, and 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 the reason being that we. We feel we can get both better health and and economic uh, outcomes, and and I think people really do respond if 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 we can have that effective messaging. I call it kind of connecting connecting the dots, so so people can understand what uh, what uh, our leaders and politicians are talking about. And 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 I'm afraid to date we've had very inconsistent uh, uh, messaging and messaging that's been far from clear. 
But we're also dealing with uh, the criticism around a targeted approach within certain circles, calling it too blunt an instrument. You know, why does a big box retailer get to stay open when a smaller retailer has to close because they don't have the same kind of infrastructure? Mm -hmm. So how do we ensure that we're shutting down activity responsibly and effectively with targeted interventions? I think it does become difficult when you have, you know, mixed messaging uh, and people are confused because we have different messages from, you know, across the country, different provinces, different localities from, you know, one day we have uh, Teresa Tam here saying, you know, you can do Halloween safely the next day in Ottawa, the uh, medical officer of public health saying no Halloween in, in Ottawa. So, you know, you have, you have these, this difficulty, I think, for people to comprehend what is going on because of this. And the more nuanced you get about, well, we can keep this open and shut that, um, I think that becomes harder, um, makes it harder for people to understand. But I do, however, agree that West Paul very sincerely that we need to have, we need to be smart about what we do. Uh, we need to be um, much better at contact uh at testing and contact tracing, we need to be identifying back ending to the to the super spreaders and and finding who those people are. We need to be um, targeting the the locality of most of the infections and death and long term care homes. We need to be doing ten thousand percent better on all of those things uh, to stop the spread of the pandemic. So I think, you know, um, noodling around and as important as this is for the businesses themselves. So I don't mean to be disrespectful in that, in that regard. I know how traumatic this is for many, for many businesses, but um, in the short run, you know, keeping them open might seem like the way to, to um, protect them, but in the medium and longer run, we're just going to bounce in and out of, you know, various states of, of um, closures and precautionary measures, uh, which is, you know, like slowly boiling the frog. The frog will eventually die uh, anyway. And I just do want to say, though, you know, I think, Paul, you mentioned the words, I think you said was the situation looks out of control. With all due respect, by that point, it's too late. Mm. You know, the, the idea of public health is that you need to take precautionary measures before the situation is out of control. You have to take steps, even when people will, who are going to feel the effects of the precautions, like small businesses, will of course be upset about that. This is their livelihood. And as Rosalie said, we need to do everything we can to help those people um, in those situations economically. But we have to take those steps now in order to prevent the public health catastrophe. I think contract tracing really is critical. Uh, we've mentioned New Zealand. It, it really is impressive. They have managed to completely control uh, community spread. And at one point, I haven't checked in on this for at least a month, so who knows what the numbers are today, but they had managed to get the mean time between identifying a probable case and symptom onset down to negative two point something days. So basically anyone that had been exposed um, and needed to be tested would be isolated before they develop symptoms, making it extremely unlikely that they would, uh, you know, 
there would be transmission or that they would be spreading it. And so I think one critical failure is is on contact tracing. If we had better contact tracing, then this that might allow for more targeted measures down to localities. Absolutely right. But if we don't actually know where the cases are coming from, yeah. be it a big box retailer or a small business, when we have community transmission and people are walking around, it, it could it's not managed. So really the point of having voluntary or mandatory lockdowns is to control that community transmission. And once the community transmission is controlled, that's when you can start to open up again, but that will only last as long as you can trace all contacts. And so I think at this point, we, we really are in need of more lockdown for control, but that in coming out of a lockdown, what we really need to be focused on is contact tracing, isolation, and really keeping community transmission to a minimum. And until we do that, uh, I really think that there is going to be this, these rolling lockdowns where if we don't have the ability to control community spread, it will inevitably end up in the communities again. Paul, despite the second wave being clearly larger than the first, you've suggested a second wave can have a lower economic cost than the first. How so? Uh, what we do is, is um, given a, a starting point, which we've tried to be representative of the current situation, we've then asked, uh, using the data and exper- experiences through the summer, how can we achieve the same health results at the lowest economic cost? In other words, what strategic combination of, of interventions, uh, lockdowns focused on high-risk areas, as well as all the non-economic interventions, uh, uh, strategically combined will give us uh, results that will minimize economic costs. So it's not comparing wave one and two, it's saying, okay, here we are in wave two, uh, what, what can we do to, to generate the, the, the health outcomes that we wish to have in our model, those being defined uh, as the results we had in the summer, and, and how can we achieve those in, in the most effective way, i.e., uh, in terms of minimizing economic costs. That's the thought experiment, if, if you like, uh, that we go through with the model. Mm-hmm. The model itself is trying to identify what the possible strategies could be. And uh, I think that sort of looking at different age groups of the population, different potential for vulnerability to the disease, as well as you know the potential for transmission in different industries is really uh, really the type of things that we should should be doing more of to const- to be refining our our restrictions and you know really once we get the second wave under control if if we were to head into a third one then we can then improve on our restrictions or public health measures that much further each time we get more information about this pandemic that can inform what we do dealing with it in the future and so I don't think that we're necessarily doing enough right now, but I, but the idea is certainly there because the costs and I would say the indirect health costs in the first lockdown were, were not insignificant. In some provinces, people that were, you know, were scheduled for surgery or found out that they might have cancer or were waiting for diagnostic tests all had to, you know, all suffered. So it's not... Uh, not thinking of it in terms of an economic versus health, but also maximizing health. We want to keep 
access to the healthcare system as much as possible. And we can't do that if there's, you know, if it becomes overwhelmed with COVID. And so I think being strategic about how we manage the disease really is the right way to go. And only with theoretical modeling, like what Paul and Jeremy are doing, can we even answer the hypothetical questions but then, you know, we run into all the complexity of how do we actually implement that in reality? And so that's really the challenge that we're facing. Well, one of the many challenges we're facing today. When you are considering strategically how to open up the um, economy uh, while still protecting public health, you should be starting from a position where you have got communities spread under control. What we're seeing is governments here reverse engineering. So we're in a state where we have community spread and increasing rates of COVID. And they're saying, okay, well, we'll shut down this one and not that one. The dandelions have bolted. We're not in a, a place where we can be asking the kinds of strategic questions that, that Paul is suggesting that we do because we're not in that space right now. They have to get community spread back under control. That's the first thing then move to proper contact testing and contact tracing. And then you can start to slowly reopen strategically using the modeling that Paul is doing. I don't think it goes the other way. It can be used as it is currently. So then let's expand on what the signs are that we need to see that tell us we've shifted from a pandemic crisis to an economic crisis. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure I, I see it quite... Uh... The way you put it, Michael. The reason why I ask is because we, we recognize that the conversation right now uh, needs to be about health mm. and that if we have a conversation about health versus the economy, that is the inappropriate way to approach the pandemic at this stage. But there are those who are saying the economy is important. At what point ought we to be focused on that? What are the signs where we can all sort of say, okay, step back and say, okay, we've got the community spread under control. Contact tracing is, is working. Um, how do we know those things are working? How do we know that we can now focus on, I, I suppose, the economic cleanup? The worst case scenario would, would, would certainly be <clears throat> having both a pandemic and, and an economic crisis. If, if we were in in a situation where both of those were happening but if we if we move from a, a pandemic crisis uh, uh by getting it under control and i think that's really what what colleen and and uh, rosalie are, are saying that we we need to get get the current situation under control and i fully agree with that but uh with that um we we would begin to see the economy rebounding back to uh to previous levels and and indeed that's what our model shows um, but uh, first and foremost, needing to get the, the, the pandemic situation under control, and then and then the economy will begin to rebound. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Paul. I think you know, and Michael, it goes to you, your opening gambit about uh, you know we can't disentangle um, achieving or quelling the uh, pandemic from our economic prospects. You know, countries that have have done, that have quelled the pandemic, have, um, you know, taken very more aggressive steps than Canada did initially, are now, you know, able to um, return to, um, you know, relatively normal economic growth, although most of them have 
hard borders up so that you know they're seeing losses and tourism and other things but actually you know government expenditures on things like hotel quarantine hotels and that sort of stuff are making up for some of it so you know investment to compensate the economic losers um uh, are happening in those places but you know largely their economies are rebounding so the the two go together uh and but the, the longer we shilly shally around thinking that we can take soft soft measures uh and you know the kind of and the hail mary pass of the vaccine coming in february that's a long way off and we're not going to have enough vaccine to treat everybody and people are still going to be fearful uh, and they're still not going to be going out uh, shopping to small businesses. Even if you don't make it a mandate, people are still going to be reluctant. And I just, I am just honestly perplexed by this idea that on the one hand, you, you know, you can sort of try to persuade Canadians that they shouldn't go out uh, and buy things um, but and, you know, engage in social life. But on the other hand, you say, keep the businesses open. I just, I just don't get it. I think in a, in a practical way, what, what our research is showing is um, even if we're saying that the situation is not under control in, in certain areas, that is, is no reason not to be strategic uh, in terms of, of dealing with the situation currently. What our results are showing is that, yes, you can have a, a widespread lockdown, you can have a circuit breaker if you wish to call it, but it's the combination of interventions together. And it seems to me there's no reason why any, any level of government can't, given a particular situation, put that combination of interventions together. And, and it results in, in you know, effective health outcomes, but also minimizing the, the economic cost to it. So, so I would argue that even given the situation, uh, the need to be strategic is very current. I, I think, though, Paul, my worry is that they all think they're being strategic right now. They're all trying to, you know, um, do this uh, idea of, of keeping, you know, business open, strategically keeping business open, and they're doing too little too late in terms of controlling the pandemic. Mm. So we can agree to disagree on that, but I think what we definitely agree on is that, you know, federal, provincial, local governments need to work in concert together. They need to attack a list of priorities um, to control and quell the pandemic. And, it, and, and as they do that, they will also be protecting the economy. And, you know, and, and, di and different, you know, everyone will have their own um, view of the right mix probably of, um, of measures. But, you know, I think there's a clear evidence base for, a cert for certain things to happen. And I think all of us have sung on the same prayer book on this of testing and contact tracing um, and targeting and protecting people in long-term care homes. Right. None of which I would say has, you know, um, risen to a top priority in my view for the federal government or provincial governments, mm -hmm. not in the way that it should. No, I, I agree with that entirely. But I think what you're saying is that those governments that, that are leaving uh, certain sectors of the economy open that, that you, you think should not be open are, are making a trade-off that is quite different than the one you and I are making. Exactly. Yeah, and we weren't meaning to necessarily talk about all of the trade-offs or, or even talk about it as a trade-off, but one of the things that I think we can, we can agree on is that really dealing with the health crisis is 
really the first priority. We want to do that with a minimal minimum economic damage possible. And we can we the three of us could argue all day about exactly how to do that. I'm sure many people are. But at the end of the day, as long as there's COVID in the community, there is some trade off between containing its spread and economic damage. But once we control community spread, that's really when we don't need as many lockdowns. The risk is actually lower. And so I think that the goals of, you know, healthy economy, healthy population are we we need to get those aligned. And so as as we've talked about, I think we need a bit of a circuit breaker. And then coming out of it, we can try and we can really try and be a little bit more strategic. But in sort of the confusion in public messaging with different levels of government and I would say a certain amount of uncertainty about what actually is the right strategy. I mean, we simply can't know. It's it's we're learning about this every day. But ultimately, the goal should be managing the health crisis, because what we've seen in other countries is the countries with the lowest case numbers or the lowest mortality are the ones with the smallest declines in GDP. And so, you know, in the details, there's a lot to discuss or disagree on. But really summing it all up, we want a healthy economy, we want a healthy population. And in the current situation, one of those has to come first, and that's dealing with COVID. I don't disagree with that, but it, it seems to me, if you're going to introduce some sort of a, a circuit breaker um, to deal with, with the, the current situation, there is no reason uh, w- why you can't complement that with uh, for example, mandatory mask wearing, strong measures to to intru- introduce uh, uh, in high risk areas social distancing. Uh, I mean, that's my point. That it's the combination of these that will will help you uh, get the health outcomes you want, uh, while at the same time minimizing the economic cost. So, so one doesn't preclude the other. Yeah, we should also talk about the fact that you know what what should federal uh, what should the federal government be doing? What should provincial governments be doing right now? So, Rosalie, you said you know we can argue all day about it, but on the other hand, I think we had agreements on things that need to be some things that need to be done. Um, so, you know, to me, the first priority for the federal government in terms of its spending, you know, it's spending a lot of money in responding to the pandemic. But yet we still have from coast to coast in Canada insufficient testing and contact tracing. How can this be? Right? It's not like we're a ridiculously poor country compared to other countries that we can't afford to make sure that this is happening. You know, for whatever reason that it is happening, the federal government should be spending its dollars first and foremost on this. And uh, in tandem with that, we don't have, you know, the lessons that we learned from wave one. Uh, was the terrible morbidity and mortality in long-term care homes. Uh, Some of us with the Royal Society wrote an op-ed about, you know, lessons we should learn from the first wave, taking us into the second wave to protect people living in long-term care residences, which includes making sure that people have, workers there have proper PPE, that there's proper inspections and et cetera, et cetera. This hasn't happened enough. And again, it's not like we're, you know, we don't have the resources to deal with this. The resources are flowing at multiple levels of government into all sorts of things. But here are two places where we know for sure that investments would make a huge difference 
to the both the spread of COVID-19 and its impact um, in terms of death and morbidity. So why don't we invest there? Being strategic really is the best way, but what we're what we're missing from the current strategy is one critical tool, which, well, maybe two, but certainly contact tracing and testing, but also adequate access to PPE and, you know, just just get everybody wearing a mask, washing their hands and doing those basic things. So I think we we almost um, got a little ahead of ourselves where we need a few very basic tools and that would enable uh, the more strategic combination of interventions. It would enable us to you know get the goals in alignment a little bit more and help us control community spread. And until we have that, we won't fully get out of the crisis with either strategic or broad-based interventions, as long as there's always there's still a way for COVID to get into the community, and then once it does, to spread. And so I think we're missing that critical tool of contact t- tracing and testing. And really, as you've mentioned, we did learn that from the first wave. And so I think that, at least personally, that should be priority one, because that gives us more information about the data, but it also gives us the ability to use some of these strategic tools in localized ways while still controlling the community spread. Thank you so much for your time and insight. It was great. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Rosalie Wanch is a policy analyst at the C.D. Howe Institute. Colleen Flood is the University of Ottawa Research Chair in Health Law and Policy and a member of the Institute's Crisis Working Group on Public Health and Emergency Measures. Paul Jenkins is a former Deputy Governor of the Bank of Canada. To read what the model Jenkins and the Institute's Jeremy Chronic built reveals, and how strategic measures based on industry and population demographics would significantly reduce the impact on the economy, visit cdhow.org. Still to come from a physically distant C.D. Howe Institute, December 7th, a towering problem, COVID-19 and the demand for commercial real estate, December 9th, resilience through change, and December 10th, Canadian surgical wait lists and COVID-19, lessons for the second wave. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thank you for listening. Stay healthy. Stay safe. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.